So it's going to be steps. Here's the first step. Write this down. Choose your text. Pretty basic, pretty simple, pretty elementary, right? Choose your text. There's an old recipe for rabbit stew that starts out, first catch the rabbit. I think that's good. Before you bake rabbit stew, first catch the rabbit. So we are expositors, we're not speculators, so you must have a text. And it's been said already yesterday uh, by several of the guys that spoke, and the idea is that, you, you know, uh, an expositor, you start with a text, you get to the meaning of the text, and then you preach the meaning of the text. You read it, and you explain it, and then you apply it. But, you know, a lot of guys today will have an idea, and then they try to uh, find verses to support their idea in their preaching, and it's really just kind of more of a pep talk or a... A lot of preaching today is motivational speaking is what it is. It's not Bible preaching. The Bible should be center. And because we start with the text is because the text is master. The text dictates what's being said. We, we're bound to the text. And, and that doesn't have to be boring. Part of the idea of homiletics is packaging it so that it's palatable and enjoyable and memorable and applicable to people's lives. So that's part of the, that's part of the art form that, that, we, that we should develop. The reason I plug these books is because if you're called to preach, you should educate yourself. I've met and talked with pastors that have been preaching for years, and they actually have never even read a book on preaching. Well, why not try to sharpen your skills and your abilities and do better at your preaching? So, but we're, we're, we're bound to the text, so you start with the text. And we could spend some time talking about the choice of a text, and we, we at Calvary Chapel like to preach through books of the Bible, but as we do that, if you're starting Colossians chapter 1, you have to determine how many verses I'm going to cover. Am I just going to cover the first two verses and preach the salutation? Am I going to go a little farther into it? So you have to pray and seek the Lord about how far you go, but you should be breaking off your text at a logical spot. So look for divisions and outlines. Look for therefores and wherefores and buts and sos and fors. And look for natural breaks in the text. But you, you determine how far you're going to go and whether or not you're going to stop here or stop there. And part of my challenge and struggle in developing a sermon during the week is, is how far do I go in the text? Where do I break off in the text? If I start, stop my sermon here, I felt a little bit that yesterday, because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we should have gone into verse 5, and we should have gone into verse 6, and we should have gone, really the whole packet should have been verse 8, okay? So it wasn't really, wasn't really modeling what I am told you to do. So do as I say, don't do as I do. But um, you, you spend time really studying the passage so that you can know where your divisions are and your breaks are going to be. But you do start with the text. And here's a little kind of application point because the Bible's the authority, not your idea, not your opinion, not your views. The Bible is the authority. So the text is paramount. The text is out front. And that you're bound by the text to preach the text because you're John Stott's preacher's portrait. You're a steward. You're a herald. So you're not a speculator and you're not an inventor. 
You're not concocting up all these fancy ideas. I, I listen to some guys preach and I go, wow, how do they think of that stuff? Where do they get that stuff? And I find that if I'm sticking to the text and preaching the text, I'm preaching what good preachers before me have preached for 2,000 years. Harry Ironside used to say, if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. And so you're not going to hear anything new, but you're going to hear what's true. And that's what's more important, right? Sometimes we want new things. We want to you know, razzmatazz people with our deep insight. But what we want is what's true. And that's what the, the Scriptures say. So here's step number two. Let's move on. Step number two is read your text and meditate on it. So pretty simple. You finally lock into your text. And you may not determine the length of your text until you've spent time reading it and meditating on it and even studying your text. So David, I love what he talked about the Saturday night uh, a malady of freaking out and wondering what you're going to preach the next morning and the idea that you'd be driving to church on Sunday morning praying that God would teach, show you what you're to preach on. I heard of one um, pastor that was saying, was boasting to his elders that, you know, I don't have to study that much. The Lord just kind of helps me and gives me what I need. And so he said, I just pray between the parsonage and the sanctuary on Sunday morning as I'm walking to God to show me what I'm to preach on. And uh, so the elders decided they would sell that parsonage and buy one five miles away. Because <laughs> his sermons obviously needed help. But, you know, you, as you're studying the text and meditating on that text, you'll, you'll, you'll come up with how far you're really supposed to go. But let me read to you from John Stott's book, Between Two Worlds, what he has to say about it. He says, quote, read the text, reread the text, read it and read it again. Turn it over and over in your mind, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, who wondered at those things and the shepherds, the shepherds told her and pondered them in her heart. Probe your text like a bee with, with, with a spring blossom and like a hummingbird probing a hibiscus flower for its nectar. Worry at it like a dog with a bone. I love that. Suck it as a child sucks an orange. Chew as a cow chews the cud. To these similes, Spurgeon added two more, the worm and the bath. It is a great thing to pray oneself into the spirit and morrow of the text, said Spurgeon, working into it by sacred feeding thereon, even as a worm bores its way into the kernel of a nut. Again, he said, let us, dear brethren, try again to get saturated with the gospel. I always find that I can preach best when I can manage to lie and soak in my text. And I like to get a text and find out its meaning and its bearings and so on. And then after I have bathed in it, I delight to lie down in it and let it soak into me. So that, that picture of just soaking in a bubble bath or something, you know. And So I like to get the text and I like to just soak in it and let it just penetrate me. And I like to meditate. And one of the benefits of preaching systematically through a book of the Bible, and one of the things I've enjoyed doing recently is picking a chapter in a Bible book, a key chapter, and preaching through that for many weeks, verse by verse. So I've preached through all of the Bible. I've preached through the whole New Testament multiple times. So I'm enjoying taking a section 
and preaching it in depth, but it's systematically. So on Monday morning, after you preach on Sunday, you wake up, you know where your sermon at least starts for the next Sunday. So you can start reading it and meditating on it and praying about it. So early in the week, I'll start determining you know, how far I'm going to go and what my text is going to involve. The great G. Campbell Morgan, who was a, a, a person that Chuck Smith read quite a bit, I discovered that many of Chuck's Sunday morning sermons uh, were influenced by G. Campbell or by G. Campbell Morgan's Metropolitan or Tabernacle, his, his sermon set, and that he preached a lot of the uh, same text that G. Campbell Morgan did. But he said these four things. He said, read and read again and get an impression. He said, think, secondly, and gain an outline. Meditate and gain an analysis. Sweat and gain an understanding. I'm sorry those points aren't on the screen for you. We should have got them up there. But let me repeat the Number one, you read and read again to get an impression. And then you think and gain an outline. And then thirdly, you meditate and gain an analysis. And then you sweat and gain an understanding. G. Campbell Morgan. Let me give you four points that I came up with. Number one, you read a variety of translations. So we've just picked the text and we're just reading it and meditating on it and soaking on it. So I like to read in a variety of translations. And then you read with observation. You read observantly, looking at phrases and words and trying to look at the divisions and so forth and just taking down observation notes. And then thirdly, you read prayerfully, obviously, as you're reading, you're praying before and after and during. You're praying, meditating. And then you read, fourthly, obediently. So read a variety of translations, obediently, observantly, and prayerfully. So let's move to step number three, study of the passage. Now what I failed to mention at the beginning of my session here is that everything I'm covering today is subjective. So this isn't the law of the Medes and the Persians, okay? You might actually hear everything I cover and go, oh, yeah, that's nice, but I, I, I like to approach it a little different. I kind of a, come at it at a different angle, and that's fine. You need to be yourself and kind of find how, what works best for you. But step number three is study the passage. So you pick the passage, you read and meditate and soak in the passage, and then you actually study the passage. Again, the subjective, uh, how different people approach the study of the book. But I, I like to, if I'm going to start a series in a book of the Bible, obviously, I like to read the whole book several times. And then I like to look at the introductions to the book and do my best to study the background and the historical setting. Get a good set of books on introduction to the New Testament, introduction to the Old Testament. So there's some great books that you can get, single volumes, multiple volumes, that all they are is introductions to the book. The challenge is if you're a busy preacher, and I'm talking to pastors, you've got a lot of stuff to do, you're very busy, and a lot of sermons to come up with, so you tend to cut short the study of the historical background, the context of the book. But try not to do that. Try to do your best to do your homework. Don't get bogged down. If you've got to preach Sunday and you start Thursday studying the background and you're still studying on Saturday night, then you're probably in trouble. 
So make sure you kind of manage your time, but do spend some time in the background and graduate into more scholarly, exegetical commentaries. Push yourself to grow in your knowledge of the Word. Don't, don't just read the real simple introductory stuff. What I do too, and I, I, again, I'm just talking to you spontaneously, but what I like to do in my study of introductions to books of the Bible I like to read the introductions that are short and quick and brief, and then I graduate into the deeper, more detailed ones as I go along. That would be a whole talk in itself about authors and books and resources. I think it's Gleason Archer that has a real excellent three-volume set of introductions to the Bible. And at the end of each book, he actually has a bibliography that's just fantastic on each book of the Bible as well. But So I'll start simple. I love Charles Erdman's commentaries. Uh, those little books are pure gold, and very few people know about them or use them or read them, and, uh, but they are great, great little books. They're all out of print for many years, so you have to go searching to find them. But, and then you'll graduate, I graduate into deeper, more detailed stuff on the background and history. And one of the reasons why I do this is because I want to see the forest before I look at the trees. I want to get back and I want to see the landscape. So you can even study it in light of a, 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 of a New Testament survey or New Testament theology. Nothing fun thing to do, and it just popped in my brain, is that when you're going to teach a book of the Bible, you get New Testament theology and read the theology of that book of the Bible you're going to preach. It's not systematic theology, it's New Testament theology. And what that does is, how is God seen? How is Jesus seen? How is the Holy Spirit seen? Uh, how, what's salvation presented in this Bible? What are these theological themes presented? It's called biblical theology. It comes in Old Testament and New Testament. And uh, it'll really deepen and enrich in your knowledge of the Word and your ability to preach the Word as well. So study the historical background. This is a sub-point to study the passage. Then I look for, in the text, I look for the thought unit. And I, this is where I really work hard on how many verses I'm going to cover and begin also to develop what might come as my sermon outline. And then number three, relate your passage to the book or the chapter it's found in. So when you're decided what text you're going to develop, what text you're going to preach, then you want to back up a little bit and see if what went before that text has you know, an implication to your text. Then you want to read beyond your text and find out if what goes after your text maybe applies to your text. One of the things I like about John R. W. Stott is he does this, he kind of synchronizes so much in the Bible. It's so amazing how he does that. And he'll bring verses before and after and tie it all together. And then all of a sudden you see how the Bible just makes sense and it's so unified and flows and it's just a, a really a glorious thought. So then uh, sub-point number four under study of the passage is study keywords and the grammar. Study keywords and the grammar. So if you're like me, not like Justin Alford, you don't know Greek or Hebrew, and you don't have Justin's phone number to call him on the phone like I did this week, then you get resources to be able to look it up and to study it in, 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 in the English to be able to dig in. But pay attention to words, especially key words. Uh, read, uh, look up the words and, and, and get, the, get the 
the grammar and, and, and the Greek word and get, get to the root of the words and understand them as best you can. And then number five, study the passage to determine the exegetical idea. Study the passage in order to read the exegetical idea. Read a good exegetical commentary after you have done all your study and all your observation, taken lots of your own notes. I am a commentary guy. And uh, that's what I have used for many years. I, I, I've, I've been in many pastors' conferences where pastors kind of, they almost discourage even using a commentary. And I'm the opposite. I think, why not fill your mind and heart with what other men have seen and known and discovered? But, you know, realize that they're, they're, they're commentaries. It's not the inspired word. And you can read too many. You can go, kind of go overboard. But when I say exegetical, what I mean by that is that they, they do what we want to do in our sermons. They exegete the text. They pull out of the text the meaning of the text. And the better ones are the ones that were actually written. They're not recorded sermons. So they're not homiletical commentaries, exegetical commentaries. And uh, they're, they're, they're academic. They're, 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 they're explaining the text. Now the reason I say that you start with those is because the first thing you do is get to the meaning of the text. And here's what busy pastors tend to do, and I know because I'm one, is skip the exegetical work and go right to the homiletical work, right to the how do I preach it, how do I package it. And you're looking for illustrations and applications, right? That's the worst thing you can do. But again, you have to manage your time so that you're soaking in the text and you're studying the text. But I personally believe that exegesis comes first before application. Now, the little book, I, I forgot that they were going to hand it. You recommended reading. You all, you all got a little recommended reading book. That's a list of commentaries uh, that I have put together on each book of the Bible. It's not exhaustive. There's good ones that are missing. There's others that could be in there, but uh, I mean, it's a great tool to get you started. They, that, that, those recommended reading has exegetical and then homiletical or slash devotional commentaries in there. Homiletical commentary is quite often uh, recorded from a sermon, a preached sermon. And it has more warmth and has introduction and application. And it's more like listening to a preacher rather than just studying the text. So I usually start with the exegetical commentaries and then I move to the devotional and homiletical commentaries. So how did they apply it? How did they outline it? How did they package it? What was the introduction? How did he, you know, illustrate it? And then I can, you know, use that kind of stuff too. So it's, it's not plagiarism if you use a lot of sources. You cut them all up and then you make it your own kind of a thing. If you're going to steal somebody's jacket, you rip it apart, re-sew it, put it on and wear it kind of thing. <laughs> then after you preach for so many years, you don't know who you stole from for so long. So it just sounds like it's all yours and people are impressed. They think it's all you, but you, you, you got nothing original. It just came from all these sources all these years. I have people quoting me like it came from me, and I know it came from Warren Worsby, you know. It's like, I, it wasn't me. But, so, you know, you, you just want to fill your heart and mind with all that kind of stuff, and I could talk for far too long. But number six, keep a notebook. I use a notebook like 8.5 by 11, you know, just five-star 
Staples notebook and I write down the verses and my thoughts and outline all those things as you go along. Now Gino is going to be dealing with hermeneutical principles, so I, 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 let me just read them, but we'll, we, won't, we won't talk about them. So that when you're studying the text and you're starting to kind of work on your sermon, uh, these are some principles that you need to apply in your understanding and interpreting the text. I believe they're on the screen. Okay, number one is literal meaning or the plain or normal meaning of the text. You don't want to allegorize or spiritualize a text that's just supposed to be taken. We start with, with the literal principle of interpretation. The authorial intent. What did the author intend to really say? What was the meaning of the, of the original author? What was Paul thinking, feeling, writing for? Why did he write to Timothy? Why did he write to the church at Ephesus? The authorial intent, the author's original intent, one meaning. All Scripture has only one meaning, not multiple meanings, and we need to get to that meaning. And the lexical principle, meaning the study of words, as I already mentioned. Grammarical structure. Number five is historical background. I mentioned that. Literary genre. That's so very important. When you're preaching... Sometimes you'll be preaching historical narrative. Sometimes you'll be preaching uh, doctrinal epistles. Sometimes you'll be pe preaching Hebrew poetry. Sometimes you'll be preaching from prophecy. So all your sermons are going to vary and change based upon the genre, the type of material that you're in, what kind of material you're preaching from. And generally, and Dr. Lutzer has done such a wonderful job with it in his preaching, is if you're in a narrative passage, you're drawing principles. You're drawing principles. A lot of preachers will take a narrative passage and they'll allegorize it or spiritualize it or they'll read typology into places that God never intended there to be typology. And again, that's imposing your ideas into the text rather than pulling out of the text what is really to be there. So it's a general rule. And Charles Swindoll is a master at doing this as well, preaching you know, uh, Bible characters and historical narrative, bringing principles from the story to bear and to apply to our lives. But it's a whole different approach. And obviously, if you preach through prophetic portions of Scripture, you know the challenge there to preach that and make it applicable as well. And then look for figures of speech. Be sensitive to that and progressive revelation. All that stuff. Each one of these points could be dealt with in great detail, but Gino's going to talk about rightly dividing the word today. So step number four, determine the big idea. So by this time in your preparation for your study, and you can see already that preparing an expository sermon takes time. I've had heard people say, well, these, these, these expository preachers, they're lazy. They, they don't, they're not creative, so they just preach the Bible. The truth is, if you're really preaching the Word, it's going to take a lot of work to dig deep and develop your sermon. So to de determine the big ideas, it's often called, is what we know as the authorial intent, the author's original meaning. In hermeneutics, the goal of interpretation is finding out what the author's idea was, the original meaning. What does it mean? What did he mean by what he said? We know what he said, and we want to know what he meant so that we can apply it properly. So we need to make that our goal, to preach the meaning of the text. Your sermon should have a single dominant idea. 
supported by other ideas, all drawn from the text. Let me repeat that. Your sermon should have a single dominant idea supported by other ideas, all drawn from the text. Someone said a sermon should be a bullet, not a buckshot. A lot of sermons are buckshot. They're not bullets. Here's step number five. I'll come back to some of these as I wrap it up with the sermon illustration that I gave you. Step number five is outline your sermon. H.B. Charles, this book that I held up here a minute ago by H.B. Charles, says, and I quote, every sermon should have a destination. It also needs a clear path to get there. A sermon outline charts the path for the sermon to reach its intended destination. You've heard the expression rabbit trails? You ever heard anyone preach and do rabbit trails? They're talking, and in their talking, they mention a thought or a word, and they go, oh, let me talk about that for a minute. They go over here. Then they mention another thought, and they go, oh, yeah, let me talk about that for a minute. And then they go over here, and then they go, oh, yeah, let me talk about that for a minute. And you go, where are we going? We started way back here, and we kept turning left and right and left and right and left and right, and we, we don't even know where we're going. And so what happens to me if I'm in the church listening, I just, I just shut off. I start working on my sermon for next Sunday. <laughs> Can't tell you how many sermons I've sat through in a church where I'm like, I'm just going to study for my sermon next Sunday right now. Or sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll feel like standing up and going, what happened to your text? I'm sure the ushers will carry me out, but I mean, it's like, dude. But they're rabbit trailing. So if you have an outline... If you have an outline, then it has a beginning, it has a pace, it has you know, a movement, and it has a conclusion. If you get on an airplane, you kind of like to know where you're going to land, right? You know, you know, when you're boarding a plane at an airport, it doesn't say, we're taking off, we don't know where we're going, but let's all go. Let's get on the plane, let's just take off. We don't know how long we'll be in this sucker, but we'll hope to land it someday. Like, ah, no thank you. I want to know where we're going, where we're going to land, how long we're going to be in the air. So a lot of times, preachers just talk, and they don't know really where they're going. Some sermons are like the dawn of creation, it's been said. Recorded in chapter 1 of Genesis, without form and void. Vance Havner, Billy Graham called him the most quotable preacher in America. He said, pity the preacher who uses the text only as a launching platform from which to blast off into space, departing therefrom and never returning thereunto. There is a power in the direct preaching of the Bible that attends no other pulpit exercise. I love that. Staying with your text. Jerry Vine says, Outlines are the burrs that lodge themselves in the minds of the listeners. They're like hooks that people can hang on to. So if you package your sermon with points, I've heard a lot of good preaching, but because it lacked main points, it's hard to remember, it's hard to retain, it's hard to grab a hold of. And I have noticed too that if sermons are well organized and points are in the... And you find people, oh, I, I, this is one of those sermons, I actually should write this down. As opposed to if it's just kind of rabbit trailing and talking, entertaining, people are just like listening, but they're not like learning anything. So it's really good to organize. And you could have 
three points, four points, two points, uh, whatever many points you want, but you know, package your sermon. Let me give you some advantages to sermon outlines. Number one, for the preacher. It gives structure to the sermon. It gives structure to the sermon. It's the skeleton. What, 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 what would you think of a human body that had no bones? What would you look like if you had no bones? It would be pretty sad, right? So it needs to have structure. And then secondly, it helps the sermon to follow a logical flow. These are advantages to the preacher. You can follow a logical flow. And, and this is a biggie to me, and I, I, I don't always achieve it. and I, 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 I'm forever constantly working at it. I never stop trying to do it better. But I think it's really important that when people listen to you preach that there's a logical flow all the way through your sermon. I know sometimes it bogs down and they're not tracking, but it should have a logical flow. Your sermon outline can help you do that. Because you can, as you develop your outline, you can look at the whole sermon and say, does this point... Sometimes I'll take point number one and make a point number two and move those around because it's more logical to start with this one and move it here. But ideally, if the points are coming from the text, then you follow the order of it in the text. But sometimes you'll shift them around a little bit to give it more of a logical flow as, a, as opposed to a textual flow. And then it helps him, that is the preacher, to see the sermon in its entirety. It helps him see the sermon in its entirety. And then D, it helps him have a sense of pace and place in his sermon. And then benefits to the congregation. Easy to follow. Easy to understand. Easy to remember. Isn't that what we want? Easy to follow, easy to understand, easy to remember. One of the most encouraging things that ever, I, I ever experienced as a preacher is when I meet somebody that heard me preach 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and they only heard me preach once, and it's happened many times, and they'll come up to me and say, man, I still remember vividly that sermon you preached that I heard you that time. And they will repeat back to me the points that I shared the text, they remember the text and the points, and man, does that bless me to think that that lodged in their brain, that lodged in their heart, and they heard it. David was talking about people who hear a great sermon, and they're asked afterwards, what, what was the text, and they don't even know. I've asked people, how, how was it? Oh, it was great. What did you like about it? I don't know. It was just really good. I really liked it. Well, what, what, what did he say? I don't know, but it, it, was, it was awesome. So, that's the good thing about having points in an outline is it helps to lodge in people's minds, helps us to remember. Now, when outlining your sermon, I believe this will go up on the screen for you too. When outlining your sermon, get your points from the text, subpoints as, as well as, as, if possible. So your primary main point should be from the text. And as I, I'll give you an illustration in a minute, we've got to hurry. Your subpoints ideally should come from the text. Now, it doesn't always work that way. Spurgeon talked about text. They're like di diamonds, and you just hit them with a hammer, and they just fall apart, and they're just beautiful gems. And then there's others you have to just keep, keep pounding on, pounding on, pounding on, pounding on before they kind of fall into place or they come together. And again, that, that, that process is going to be affected by whether or not you're in a narrative or a prophecy or poetry or preaching didactic, doctrinal literature, whatever it might be, 
is going to be determined by how easy that text just kind of breaks up. When I'm between series or between books, and some of you from Revival might notice, I get to preach my favorite sermons, and that's because they're easy to preach. They're like, boom, you hit them with a hammer, and they just fold into a perfect little outline, and it's like, yeah, that's my sermon this Sunday. That's, that's the, now I can go surfing, and I have time. <laughs> it's just so easy. It's just so beautiful. But there's other texts that you're bound by as you're going through systematically, like, man, this is a tough one. I, I don't know how to out, I don't, I don't know how to get, I don't know what points, I, I got to figure out how to apply it, and, and it's just hard. So, you know, you pray, 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 and ask the Holy Spirit to help you in the development of that message. So you get your points from the text, preferably subpoints. There should be a logical connection between your points. Ideally, there should be a logical connection between your points. Your three points aren't three separate topics or three separate sermons. That's a string of pearls. That's not one diamond. And then number three, try to make your points applicable. In other words, don't just have your points informational. Make them life applicational. How to pray. How to witness. How to this. Try to make your points connect with life as opposed to just pass on information. So you could ask these questions of your text. How? What? Why? When? Where? And who? Ask these questions. How? What? Why? When? Where? And who? Sometimes your text can break up. How should we pray? Why should we pray? Who should pray? When should we pray? Um, many years ago, that was a, a kind of a new thing for me to just like, yeah, duh. Why didn't I think of this years ago? Just start asking questions. I love to ask a question and then answer it from the text. You know, who should, be, who should pray? Well, the, Paul tells us. Why should we pray? It's the next verse. It's verse 3. Look at Paul tells us. H- how should we pray? Oh, verse 6, Paul tells us right here in the Bible. Oh, really? There it is. So ask a question and then draw them into the text to answer their question from the Bible. Now, be careful when you're doing your points and your outlines, and I could talk about this a while, but don't over-worry or fret about alliteration. Your points don't all have to start with the same letter. All P's or all B's or all D's or whatever. If alliteration works... To be consistent with the text, use it. If it doesn't, don't worry about it. Supposedly it helps for memorization and so forth. I'm not convinced that really is necessarily so. I think it's just cutesy, and I do use it when I can, but I, but I struggle with using an alliteration points just for the sake of alliteration when it doesn't really convey the meaning of the text. Now, I love Jerry Vines, and some of you may be Jerry Vines fans and read his books, but I think he over-alliterates. I think he over-alliterates to the point where, dude, that's, you, you've missed the point of the text just so your word can start with the letter P or something like that. I mean, it just gets a little ridiculous. So be careful with alliteration. Now here's step number six. Fill in the sermon outline. So remember the outline is the skeleton. Now you've got to make the dry bones live and put flesh on them. It's filling in the outline with supporting materials, bringing clarity and amplification and application points to your sermon. So put meat on those bones. Often as you are preaching, the people listening will be asking questions. 
They'll be asking, why does this matter? What evidence is there for what you're saying? Sounds good, but does it really work? So you want to fill in the, the outline with life application. Let me give you some points to how to fill in your sermon outline. Number one, restatement, repetition. But what you do is you say the same thing in different with using different words. So don't just keep repeating the same statement, but rephrase it in different ways. And then defining words and terms, then facts, statistics, examples, observation, and then quotations. You can use quotations to put meat on the bones and fill in the outline. And illustrations. And C.H. Spurgeon just defined illustrations as windows in a house that let the light in. Now let me talk about illustrations for just a moment. They add light. They aid to memory. They hold attention. And they can stir emotion. So put windows in your house. Who likes a house without windows, right? Let's the light in so you can see and understand things. But you don't want a glass house. You don't want all windows. Too many windows is not good. But you want to let the light in, illustration. And then characteristics of a good illustration. This probably should be a two-part lecture. I'm trying to race through this stuff right now. Uh, characteristics of a good illustration, tasteful and appropriate. You actually have to be careful. You don't use cursed language. You don't say things that will get people's minds going directions you don't want them to go. So you need to be careful and thoughtful about what you say in your illustrations. They should be reverent. Or excuse me, relevant, not reverent. Relevant. Can't even read my own word. Simple. Easy to understand. And they should be told well. If you read them, try to read them well. If you, if you tell it, try to tell it well. Cautious in, caution in using illustrations. Be careful, illustrated books are usually outdated. You don't know if the stories are true. They're usually different time, different culture. And uh, you end up kind of changing the story and it's not even real. You should ask yourself when you tell a story, is, is it true? You know, a lot of preachers too, and this is a whole thing in itself, a lot of preachers will tell stories and they're not even true. But you tell them like it's a true story. So um, eventually you can be busted for not telling the truth or lying because it's, it's, it's just not a true story. And then make it clear, preach the text, not the illustration. Here's, a, here's, here's what I will say before I leave that subject. A lot of preachers build their whole sermon on a story. I have heard entire sermons that start with a, a story, a life story, you all about themselves. And then, like I said, somewhere they do their best to throw a verse in to make it think that it's biblical preaching. But it was, it was all a story about them. It's self-Jesus, it's not Isa-Jesus. It's, it's, or it is Isa-Jesus, reading self into the text. So don't build your sermon on the illustration. Build it on the text, the Word of God. Number seven, introduction and conclusions. Every good sermon should have an introduction and conclusion. It's important. During the introduction, you're at, your audience decides whether or not they will listen to you. You gain their attention the first 
few words you say. The illustrations of the windows to a house, the illustrations of front porch. The illustrations of front porch. So you don't want a great big gigantic, I use the word honking front porch, and a little tiny house. You don't want a great big giant house and a little tiny front porch. You want the front porch to be proportionate to the house as well as the number of windows in your house. But what is his purpose to introduce your sermon? To command attention and awaken interest. There's an old Russian proverb. It's the same as with men as with donkeys. Whenever you would hold them fast, you must first get a very firm grip on their ears. So you want to get their attention. Now, what do you do to get their attention in the introduction? You can first of all ask a question that surfaces a need. Or you can tell a story, you can use humor, but the joke should be introducing your topic. I could talk about each one of these points for a long time, but I'm starting to run out of time and I want you to have a break. But let me say something about a joke to introduce your sermon. Humor's fine. And uh, Spurgeon was told he used too much humor in his sermon. And he said, if you, a woman, a woman was attacking. I, I, I actually over the years have had, not too many, but I've had some people say, you know, Pastor Miller, you, 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 you use too much humor in your sermon. Which makes me want to laugh. But when they said that, the woman said that to Spurgeon, she said, Madam, if you knew how much I held back, you'd give me more credit. But if you're going to tell a joke, it really, really, really should introduce your topic. Otherwise, you're just a comedian. You're just a comedian. I heard Jay Vernon McGee once say that his wife really chided him because he spent like 15 minutes telling jokes before he preached one time. Thank God for wives who will tell you the truth, right? And he learned that, you know, if I'm going to tell a humorous joke, it ought to introduce my topic. You ever heard a guy get up to preach and tell something funny? It's funny. It's like, but what did it have to do with what we're talking about? Nothing, but it was funny, wasn't it? then you just, you just become a comedian. You're not introducing your topic. And that's not, not really the time and the place for that. So, you can give a fat, fat, uh, startling fact or statistic. You can make a statement about the text, which is kind of what I like to do quite often. Or you can introduce a subject. Uh, to introduce a subject, you bring, uh, to introduce the subject, excuse me, brings clarity, should have unity, should have brevity, so what I'm talking about is in, to, in order to introduce your subject, number two, who's ever running the screens, number two is to uh, bring clarity and it should have unity. Probably my notes are probably whacked out. That's why it's messed up. And then it should have brevity. Does that say number five? Do I know, how to, do I, do I know what I'm doing right now? <laughs> Nothing before if you're preaching first thing in the morning, don't stay up late the night before either. It should have gravity. It should have gravity, it should have unity, and it should have variety. 
It should have breath. Let me go back to have brevity. You shouldn't give a 20-minute introduction to a 30-minute sermon. Don't you don't have I mean, your inner, it should just introduce. It's again, it's the front porch. For heaven's sake, when you get on the front porch, it's to get you in the house. It's not like when somebody comes over to your house and go, yeah, let's just spend the day on the front porch. I mean, you might, but it's like it's just it's to get you in the house. So, you know, sometimes the introduction loses you. So an old Welsh woman once said of the Puritan preacher John Owen that he was so long spreading the table that she lost her appetite for the meal. I love that. So sometimes preachers lose their congregation because they take too long introducing their topic. And so it has to have variety. It should not promise more than it delivers. Don't promise them some great, great topic and then not deal with it. It should not be too loud or sentimental or too emotional. Sometimes preachers start with a real bang in their introduction and then the sermon just kind of fizzles the rest of it. So you want it to build up and then come to a conclusion. Try not to, not, try not to read your introduction. Try to just get eye contact and tell it. And it should not be an apology. What I mean by that is that if you don't know what you're talking about, if you haven't had time to prepare, you're apprehensive in your preaching, don't get up and tell everybody. Like, I'm really sorry, but I didn't get to study this week. And this sermon's going to be really lousy. But I, I, I just hope you'll bear with me. If you haven't studied, and once you start preaching, they will know that. <laughs> you don't have to tell them. If you get through without them knowing that, who, you know, good. So why give them that information? Why turn them off before you even start? Well, I'm just going to go get a donut right now. I mean, why even listen to this dude? So let me race to this conclusion right here. Oh, should make this two sessions and spend more time with it. Okay, the conclusion is the picture, the imagery there is landing the airplane. Good sermon has a good landing. They should be clear, compelling, and climactic. Conclusions can take different shapes and forms. Just, uh, so see, see, try your best to create unity or variety in your conclusions. What are some of the conclusions that you can use? Summary. You can go back and summarize. It may not be the ideal thing, but it's, it, it's a perfectly suitable way to conclude your sermon. Summarize. And then, um, secondly, it could be you tell a story or illustration to drive home the point, to bring a closing application. Or it can be a quotation. You can use a poem, a hymn or another verse of Scripture to wraps up or summarizes what you said. Or you can ask a question. Let them kind of come to their own conclusion, which is obvious, kind of a you know, question that brings them to their right conclusion. A rhetorical question. Specific directions, call to action. Don't forget to run to the cross. Preach Christ. Preach evangelistically. And don't forget to pray, verse number 7. You can close in prayer. Pray for illumination and transformation. Now what should we avoid in, in our conclusions? 
Don't announce that you're concluding and then not conclude. That profound? Don't you love it when you've been on a long flight and the pilot says, we're beginning our descent? And, we're gonna, and then the descent is an hour long. It's like, don't tell me we're going to. Don't make me put my seat back up and all that stuff and stop drinking my soda. I want to cruise for a while, you know. And then it's just like, I thought he said we were going to land. Or when the plane starts to come down the land, then all of a sudden, woo, it takes off again. Sometimes for, for my final thought, and then they go on for three final thoughts. I, had a, I did that one time, and the guy comes, you lied. I go, what do you mean I lied? You said you were going to stop, and you didn't. So, you know, if the plane needs to land, 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 land the plane. So very important. Don't introduce new material. Don't introduce material, which I was going to do, but I'm not going to do now. <laughs> Number nine, don't forget to pray. Don't forget to pray. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, fire in preaching depends on fire in the preacher. And this, in turn, comes from the Holy Spirit. Preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. Amen? Okay, what I was hoping to do was to go through that sermon with you. But I'm not going to. Because I'm supposed to land the plane right now. But let me just say this about that sermon. I preached it many years ago. I preached it recently a few months ago. Those are my handwritten notes. They're a little old, so my handwritten notes are a little more refined. But I think it's a good example of an expository sermon. Topic is how to have a winsome walk. So we walk prayerfully. We walk wisely. Uh, I don't even remember what the three points are. But the subpoints, that sermon you have in your hand, the points and the subpoints come from the text. The points and the subpoints come right out of the text. So uh, I, I, would, I would say that's, that's an expository sermon, right? I'm supposed to stop, right?